Well, welcome to Gospel Church Online this week. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Church. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to, uh, to um, welcome you. That's the word I'm looking for. Welcome you here. Uh, and we're, we're really excited that the day may be coming up when we actually get to welcome people in person again as well. Uh, watch this space for where exactly in Minlison we're going to be doing that. Um, but for now, we're, re- we're just going to dive straight into this today. Uh, so so I, I, actually, I'm going to pray for us, um, and, and then we're, then we're going to get into the Word of God. Um, Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you are speaking to us this morning from your Word. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have uh, struck me and, and, and changed me and, and challenged me through this uh, Word that you have given us in in the gospel of luke we ask that you would grow us through it that you would make us more like jesus and lord most of all that you would give us uh, a fresh and better view of who jesus is and who you are because lord we know that in knowing you we are changed we know that in knowing you we find our joy and our hope so we pray lord that today that's what would happen we would come to know you more in jesus name uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, how do you approach someone? Well, I mean, obviously the answer is depends, right? Depends who that person is. Uh, there are obviously different ways that you approach, say, your friend who you like to catch up with versus, you know, the person behind the register at the shop. Uh, you probably aren't going to give that person a hug. I mean, I suppose at the moment you wouldn't give either of them a hug, but uh, it's a, it's a for example, in the current climate. Um, but, but then, you know, maybe to take a more extreme example, uh, your friend versus, say, the Queen of England. Uh, if you greeted the Queen of England in the same way that you might greet a dear friend, then you might get in a bit of trouble, to be honest. Uh, there are strict rules around what happens when we stand in front of the Queen. There are strict rules around how we have to react, how what we have to do, how we have to bow, that sort of thing. And, and each, uh, each person that we know, each person we know, we approach differently. Uh, you know, you can have, we might have some fun with this afterwards in the, in the Zoom call, uh, discussing what are some examples of people you have to approach in a peculiar way. Uh, People often pick up on an on obscure side note in my sermon for discussion afterwards. So feel free to make that the one for this week. Uh, but in today's passage of Luke, uh, we, we are traveling through the Gospel of Luke here at Gospel Church at the moment. If you want to catch up on that, feel free to see the previous videos or our, our audio sermons on the website. But uh, in this passage, we continue to get this growing picture of the identity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. As we see him healing the centurion's servant uh, who is on death's door and then as we see him raising the widow's son it really is a remarkable little passage we're in today but as we see jesus and as we see how other people interact with jesus uh, we also begin to get a picture of how we are to approach him how we come to jesus what is the appropriate way to approach jesus And that's an important question because as the saviour of the world, as the only one who has power over death, who has defeated death and our sin, who brings us deliverance from those things, from eternal judgment, we are all in desperate need of Jesus. As the only one who brings meaningful change in people's lives, we are all in desperate need of Jesus. 
And this isn't just relevant for people who don't know Jesus yet, you know? This passage can be a powerful reminder for those of us who have known Jesus for years. Maybe, maybe you have known him for, for a long time, right? A reminder of the nature of our relationship with him and how we come to him. Because we can fall into, into patterns as, as Christians that are unhealthy, uh, that are unhelpful. We can fall into living in a way that denies the truth of our relationship with Jesus. Subtly and slowly, Christians often cease to reflect the reality of our faith in Jesus, in how we relate to him. So this passage is really important for, for everyone, for everyone listening today, whether Christian or not. And, and this passage really does approach the question, how do we approach Jesus? And our passage today, it's in, in two parts, gives us these two complementary answers. Really, it's one building out answer to that question. And sorry, I'm just going to put this stand up. And the first answer, which we'll uh, find in verses 1 to 10, if you don't have that open already, by the way, it is on page 53, 52 of the Luke Scripture Journals at Gospel Church, uh, or on another page of your Bible, if you don't have one of these. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please get in touch with us. But in this passage, the first answer we're going to find is that we approach Jesus in faith. And that faith really is the only thing that matters approaching Jesus. Let's dig into this now. Read this, read this with me from Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, so we're coming out of the Sermon on the Plain, after he'd finished them, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. We're going to pause there. Uh, we've kind of got the first half of our first chunk here. Uh, here at the, the start of our passage, we get introduced to this new character in the story. He's not one that we're going to see ongoingly, but the, the centurion. And there are really these two main facts that we get about him in laying the, uh, the groundwork of this guy. We learn that he is significant and that he is in need. He is an unusually significant Gentile in the Jewish community. Uh, he's a peculiar guy, this fella. Uh, a centurion uh, in, the, in the Roman army was roughly the equivalent of, say, an army captain today. He was the, the leader of about 100 men and so, so whilst not being the highest ranking officer in the world, he wasn't an insignificant guy in that right. But not just that, clearly he was well thought of by the Jews, right? Uh, in fact, it, it would have been really, really surprising to ancient readers as they read this text to see that he got the, the elders, the local Jewish elders of his town, 
to go and get Jesus for him and that they went willingly. They did it happily. They asked Jesus earnestly. That would have been a shock to most people. The, uh, the, the Romans and the Jews didn't have much of a relationship really. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware. This was, a, this was a ranking officer of the occupying forces of the nation, right? Not typically a popular thing and yet his love for the Jewish people has won over even the, the local religious leaders of the synagogue in his local area. And, and finally, we see the, his significance in what he has done. He's built the local synagogue. You know, that's, that's no mean feat, um, accounting in large part for his popularity for the Jews, by the way, uh, with the Jews, by the way. But, but this must have taken a lot of money, right? And a lot of time and a lot of effort. Uh, and so he is also financially significant, we can probably say. He has some money behind him, which he uses for good. Sorry. So we get the image here of a man of significant standing in the community, regardless of the fact that he was a Gentile. But then in contrast to his significance, he's also in need. His servant, a man that he values, is lying dying. Um, he's deathly ill. And it's interesting that it says that this servant was highly valued by him. Because, of course, people died quite a bit back then. I know, you know, people die quite a bit today, but, but it was different then. You know, people were lucky if they reached what we would call middle age today, back then. The, the average life expectancy didn't get to that. And so it seems he is a man, this centurion is a man who actually values the people under him. He cares for them, looks after them. It's not just, they're not just people to him because he values them, even though it would have been reasonable to expect that a servant might die. It might be reasonable to expect that you lose a few people every now and then, and yet he values the people under him. So anyway, he sends the local Jewish elders to Jesus. Uh, and it's really significant to see that the way they portray uh, the, the way they portray him is in contrast to the way that he portrays himself, uh, this centurion. They come to Jesus and they say, come, help this guy. He's worthy. He, he built our synagogue. He cares for us. He loves our nation. He's worthy. They list the good things he's done to demonstrate that he is worthy. But then Jesus, when he's on his way, uh, the centurion catches wind of the fact that he's coming and he sends yet more messengers to Jesus to say, no, don't come. Don't come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you here. It's a bit of a surprise, right? He's sent to get this guy and then he sends more people. He says, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Now, do you see the contrast there? The Jewish elders come and they say, he's worthy. But the centurion says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of you, Jesus. You know, you don't blame the, uh, the Jewish leaders, by the way. You know, this guy had been a top bloke to them. But, but this guy sees Jesus come in and he goes, I'm not worthy to have that man in my house. This is why he didn't come in the first place himself. Because astoundingly, this significant man, this Gentile soldier and leader of the community has, has garnered something about Jesus 
that basically all of the Jews thus far in Luke have missed. And that is that, that I am not worthy to stand in his presence. I am not worthy of his help. And remember, what, what we're seeing here is that we are to approach Jesus in faith. And this is the first part of what it means to come to Jesus in faith. You see, approaching Jesus in faith first means that we have to have a realistic view of ourselves. That we don't deserve him. And this is true for every one of us, by the way. Um, I'm sorry, some people might be offended by that, but we don't deserve Jesus' help, any of us. Over the last couple of weeks, we went through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Plain. We saw, we saw Jesus teaching that his followers must love their enemies and bless those who persecute them and, and pray for those who hate them, right? And you might remember, we noted something there, that that's what Jesus is like, actually. He's teaching his people to be like him. You see, we were all the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of God, really. Trapped in sin and worthy only of God's condemnation. And if, if you're a Christian, the only difference is that you are living in the constant grace of God. You're receiving more from him. You're still not worthy, but you are receiving the blessing that you don't deserve. And to be honest, this can be... Uh, this can be a place for us to stumble as Christians, is our view of ourselves. Uh, when a person first comes to faith, it's pretty, pretty typical that, that you're filled with the knowledge of how unworthy you are and how grateful I should be because God has chosen to love me even though I deserved none of it. He's chosen to save me regardless of my sin. But, but, but 5, 10, 30, 50 years on, uh, sometimes we can be tempted into believing that after all of these years of following Jesus, well, now he owes me something. Now I'm, now I'm worthy. Especially if you've seen growth, if you've seen uh, you know, your faith grow, if you've been walking in faith with the Lord and increasingly so, it's easy to fall into thinking sometimes that now I deserve God's blessing. Now I deserve him. But we need to re return here to ground zero, really. Return to some basics of the Christian faith. The Christian life doesn't consist of God graciously saving you and then you repaying him through your entire life of good works. Uh, no, the Christian life consists of God graciously saving you. We got that bit right. And then him graciously and patiently working for your transformation, for your good in every day of your life, leading you in a better way that is better for you in grace. Those words there from, Lamina from Lamentations chapter 3, I, I love them, but... Um, God's mercies are new every morning. They're just as true after 50 years of faith as they were the first day you were saved. We live every day in the mercy of God, in the gracious provision of God. And the point is not that we have a, a debt to God 
that grows and grows and that we will never be able to repay and that we need to keep working on it, it becomes more and more burdensome. That's not the point. No, it's grace. It's mercy. It's a gift. You'll never be able to repay it and you, could, you will never be asked to. He graciously leads you in new life. But every day, if we see ourselves rightly, we should be growing in gratefulness to God for our salvation in Him from the punishment of sin, sure, uh, but, but also if we have been changed, if we are seeing change in our lives for the better, then that gives us whole new reason for gratefulness, right? Because it is solely by His grace and for our good that that transformation has come about. Now, having, having said that, whilst approaching Jesus in faith first requires a realistic view of ourselves, our, worthy, our unworthiness, that's only, only one side of the coin here in this first section. And, and we see the other side in what happens next. Read this with me. Um, we're in verse 6. The centurion says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not... Presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What we see here is that whilst approaching Jesus in faith requires a realistic view of ourselves, it also requires a realistic view of Jesus. In fact, you'd probably say that's the bigger side of the equation. And that's what this centurion, he has... Uh, astoundingly, really. This is probably the clearest statement of the all-encompassing authority of Jesus that we've had so far in the Gospel of Luke here. And remember, this whole slab of the book up to chapter 9 from like chapter 3 or 4 onwards uh, is, is about running us into the authority of Jesus. And here it is stated better than anywhere else so far by a Roman centurion of all people. I'm not worthy for you to come, he says, but even if you don't come, I know you can do what I need. Just say the word, Lord. Imagine being one of the listeners, right? And it's important to remember this in context, right? They're in a town named Capernaum. This is not the first time that Capernaum has come up in this narrative. In chapter 4, Jesus was there. He healed a bunch of people. He went into the synagogue and cast out a demon. He healed uh, Simon's mother and, 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 and just a whole host of other people we read about were coming to him and being healed by him. And, and if you were one of the Jewish bystanders, you may well have been convinced that Jesus could heal, uh, that, that he could do it, but surely he at least needed to touch him, right? Surely he at least needs to go in there and rebuke the sickness or whatever it is and, and, and make him better in that way. But the centurion goes one step further. He sees that Jesus has absolute authority by his voice. 
He, he need but speak and it will be. And he says, I, he says, I get how authority works, right? As a centurion with soldiers under me, when I speak a command, my servants, they do it. And the, and the startling implication is that Jesus, everything serves Jesus. The whole of creation serves Jesus. You know, that, to the Jewish listeners, this must have been astounding. They would have known who alone has the power, uh, the power in their words and their words alone to wield absolute authority. I mean, even if you weren't a particularly good Jew of the time, you were probably familiar with the fact that with his words, God created the world. He just spoke the word and it happened. He has that kind of authority in creation. They would have been familiar with the fact that God spoke and the, and the Red Sea was held back and they were delivered. God spoke and the plagues came on Egypt. God spoke and his word had carried them through for generations, even when they'd been unfaithful to it. And yet this centurion is saying that the words of Jesus have that kind of authority. And the implication for all of them would have been, well, he must be God then. He must wield the power of God. And if that blew your socks off as an ancient Jew, then what Jesus said would have doubled the amazement, right? I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is a, this is a critical moment. Jesus is marveling at this guy and he points the whole crowd towards this Roman occupying centurion because Jesus knows that this centurion has the one thing that everybody needs, faith. And, and this certainly foreshadows, by the way, the, the, the salvation that would come to the Gentiles by faith, like this Roman centurion, Gentiles like you and me, uh, if you're not Jewish anyway, uh, who would join the people of God who would be saved by faith in Jesus alone, by the grace of God alone. But the implication of what Jesus says is that this guy is right. He's right to say what he's said. Jesus really is God. He really does have power to speak and it will happen regardless of what it is. And the centurion is right, of course, because when the friends of the centurion return, they find that the servant is well. But what we have now is that approaching Jesus by faith means coming to Jesus needy, knowing our unworthiness, but knowing that he is willing and able. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this doesn't mean that if you come to Jesus for something and believe hard enough, you know, trust that he's willing and able, trust that you're not worthy of it, then no matter what it is, you will always get what you want. Even if it's something good like being healed or, or someone you love being healed, we don't get that absolute healing promise in scripture. That's just not a thing. We, we don't get it, but, but it's, no matter whether we trust in him or not, but, but what we do have promised is that his grace will be to those who come to him in faith. 
the implication of that is that one day, one day in this life or the next, every illness, every sorrow, every pain, every effect of sin in this world and every sin from this world will be gone and we'll live with, in joy with him forever. And that's what waits for those who have faith in Jesus. And he does heal today as well, by the way. Not guaranteed, but he does. And I can deal with the can of worms I've just opened another time. Uh, because that's not what this text is about. What we see next, though, should rightly build our confidence to come to Jesus in faith. Trusting that I'm unworthy, that he is willing and able. What we see now should build our confidence to do that. Because what we see now is that we can approach Jesus in faith, faith that he is compassionate towards us. Step back into this now with me. Let's read it. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Would you try and imagine this like you're one of the people following Jesus at the time? Try and see what happened here. It's, it's a dramatic scene we get. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man, man sat, sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It's such a, such a striking scene, isn't it? What happens here? Two crowds meet head on. On the one hand, you have the crowd of Jesus' disciples and, and people of the general public following him, right? Still on a high from what they've just experienced in Capernaum, where Jesus healed a guy like, just by saying the word at a great distance. This crowd would have moved with a sense of expectation, of anticipation of what's going to happen next. What will Jesus do next for those who were starting to believe maybe that he might even be the Christ, they might have been wondering, when will he take power? When's he going to throw out the Romans? When are we going to be free from them again? Because that's what most Jews expected the Christ to come and to do. You can imagine the, the excited chatter going on in this group. You know, the kind of mumbling of the rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb of the group. Uh, talking and, and the joyful conversations, maybe even, you know, the odd song being struck up as they walk the road. And at the head of the group, Jesus is leading the way. But what a contrast coming out of the town of Nain as they come towards it. There is another crowd. Mourners. Weeping for the death of a young man taken before his time. And this group 
they're anticipating something too, but something much darker. You see, the young man is the only remaining male, at least, relative of his mother, whose husband's also died at some point. She's a widow. And in that culture, a woman woman needed a man by her side. This wasn't, a, it's not sexist of me to say that. It was a practical necessity in the culture of the day that a woman have a man who could provide for her. A man who could earn the money for the household because there were limits on what a woman could do. A man who could bring the food home for the house. So in a real enough way, these people are actually even mourning kind of the death of two people. A son and a mother. They're mourning over the life of the young man and the life of his mother who will not realistically be able to cope in this world anymore without him. And in contrast to the excited babble, the, the, the songs and the, the conversations of the crowd following Jesus, loud weeping and mourning comes from this crowd. And at the head of the crowd walks this broken, broken woman, mourning the loss of her son and the destruction of her own life at the same time. You know, shattered that her only son won't be there tomorrow morning when she wakes up. His footsteps will never strike the floor again in this house. She'll never hear his voice again. Such a terrible pain. And what happens here really, really emphasizes that Jesus came for the broken. Jesus raises this young man from the dead. <laughs> and in so doing, he demonstrates his great power over death and he foreshadows his defeat of death that is coming up when he would walk out of the tomb and freely offer eternal life to everyone who would believe. But amidst the grandeur of the act of raising this man from the dead, let's not miss the beauty of the detail of what happens here. Because it doesn't say that Jesus saw the dead man and he saw his opportunity to demonstrate his power and he went for it. Luke's really specific about Jesus' reason for what he did here. Verse 13, these words are amazing. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. See, Jesus isn't a, uh, an opportunistic politician or, or leader looking for his chance to prove himself to the people. He sees this woman. He sees her, her brokenness and her pain. He sees her need and her sorrow. He sees the eyes that are just red from the weeping. The, the gaunt eyes of one who's mourned and mourned until she didn't have tears left. And he cares about her. He has compassion for her. And you see, when we're talking about how we approach Jesus in faith, this is so vital, right? It's not just about seeing that he's mighty or that I'm unworthy. We approach Jesus in faith 
that he is compassionate towards me. He's compassionate towards us. And you can trust that when you come to Jesus in faith, he will show you compassion. Maybe you're hurting right now. And maybe you've even fallen into either consciously or unconsciously believing that God, God's cruelly gloating over you. God, God's doing this to you, joyfully inflicting pain on you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus died to remove the pain from this world that you are feeling right now. And, and to bring you into joy with him forever. He died to defeat the brokenness. And we shouldn't miss also the broader implication that Jesus came for the hurting. That, that has implications for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. For every Christian, we are sent into this world to the hurting, to those who are in pain. The church is in the world to reach everyone, but let's never fall into wanting just the influential or just those who have it all together to become Christians. No, Jesus came to bring hope to the hopeless, joy to the mourning, and that's the sort of place his church ought to be as well. And all this leads us back again to the question of Jesus' identity that we keep running into in this section of Luke. This, who is this man, question. You see, as we've been answering the question, who is this man, there's been this pair of intertwined lessons that we've seen, that we keep running into, in fact, in the person of Jesus. As we walk through Luke, Luke shows us the identity of Jesus in these two complementary ways, for two complementary reasons. On the one hand, he shows us who Jesus is in such a way that we unavoidably have to end up saying, well, he's God. We realize who he is. We realize he's not just a man. He's the God man. I mean, just look at what we have today, right? Jesus heals the sick without even going near them just by speaking the word. Jesus raises the dead. <laughs> uh, but then on the other hand, on the flip side, Luke isn't just showing us that Jesus is God. He's showing us God is Jesus. He is revealing what God is like through Jesus. He's taking our picture of, a, of the, the wrath-filled monster in the sky or, or of a distant being of power. And he's saying, no, 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 wait a second. Look here, this is what God is like. When a centurion separated from the people of God needs help, Jesus is there for him and able to respond powerfully to his faith. When a poor, broken widow loses her son, Jesus, God, cares. And he's able to do something about it. He is filled with compassion in his heart for those who are broken. That's what God is like. Doesn't this just bring out the weight of that question that we asked at the beginning of today? 
How do we approach Jesus? Or perhaps more personally, how do you approach Jesus? Because it's not just the centurion and the widow, is it? When we view ourselves rightly as we must, we see that we are all in need of him. We are all broken and in need of the compassion of God. Doesn't, doesn't this reinforce the urgency, right? The, the necessity that each of us grasp the answer to the question, how do we approach Jesus? Jesus is the man who defeats the grave. There is no other. And this is a, this is a precursor. This kid was going to die again one day, but one day Jesus would rise from death and defeat it forever, giving eternal life to everyone who would come to him in faith. Anyone who comes to him would be delivered from sin and death. So this is an urgent question to everyone. How do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him in faith? Does your faith look like what we've seen here today? And the answer that we've seen today of how we must come to Jesus, the reality that we need to live in every day. This isn't just talking, once again, about how you first come to Jesus. This is how we live in Jesus. Is that we come to him in faith, trusting that I'm not enough, that I'm not worthy, but that he is willing and able and compassionate. Trusting that he can do it and that he wants to because he loves me. He loves to mend me from my brokenness. If you come to him in faith, he will save you. And when we live in faith in him, he will be working for our good to transform us, to make us more like him, to lead us in the life that walks towards heaven. He'll conquer what separates a person from God and bring you into the joy of knowing him. And you will one day live with him forever in joy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you, Lord, that all you ask of us is faith. And indeed, the Bible even says that you give faith. We ask, Lord, that we would respond in faith today that we would be led to trust you more deeply, that our lives would walk in obedience to you out of a deep-set faith, knowing that we're not worthy, Lord. We, we admit it now. We stand before you unworthy, but trusting in your great love and your great power, trusting that you have compassion on poor sinners like us. I ask that you would be building this humble faith in the lives of your people every day, and that you would bring more to trust and believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.